I'm a version of myself when I'm on that show as well. And I'm a version of myself when I'm on stage. It doesn't, I don't feel like it's dishonest because it's that, that I am like that quite a lot of the time, but it's a heightened version of me. Yeah. And if that was me all the time, then no one would want to be around me. Ireland Unfiltered. Stripped back, intimate and honest conversations. Together with Carlsberg Unfiltered. Welcome to Ireland Unfiltered. This week's guest is Jack Whitehall. Jack is playing in the Three Arena on the 17th and 18th of December as part of uh, a new stand-up tour he's embarking on, which I imagine will be as hugely successful as as so many others have been and uh, another example of his wide range of talents. Um, It was really interesting talking to him about what, as his career progresses and he becomes successful uh, in all different uh, uh, disciplines what brings him back to one of the most frightening to my eyes which is standing up in front of an audience and trying to make them laugh uh, but it was it was interesting to hear him talk about how that began and why as somebody who comes from a very privileged background which he hasn't uh, which he's always um, um, gr- uh, embraced um, and not try to you know deny that the, the the truth of standing on stage on your own is something that is kind of liberating and refreshing. Um, we talked about a lot more about how the public school public school system in England has created a generation of leaders who are who have done so much damage, uh, and an awful lot more. It was a really fascinating interview with a with a really likable guy. Um, before we go to it, don't forget to subscribe to Ireland Unfiltered on all the usual channels. And if you like the show, please leave a review. Jack, you're very welcome to Ireland Filtered. Thank you very much for being uh, on the show. It's great to have you here. Um, you're about to embark on a, a tour which sees you in Dublin in, in December in, in the Three Arena. What is it like when you, what is the overriding emotion you have when you embark on a, a tour? Um, I think at this point, I'm just starting doing preview shows. And when you do preview shows, there's a lot of apprehension and uh i get very nervous um and very anxious about the show and more so than anything else just because all these tickets are have been bought and people are coming to see the show and i feel a great deal of pressure and it's all on you as well you really have to deliver um and then as the previews um pass and you begin to hone the show and then it becomes ready for the the big arena days then I I, I I i get very very excited and i really it's my first love it's what i hmm. started doing when i was 18 it's what i always wanted to do and this for me is like the pinnacle of of that um of that journey to to be able to go and do a show in in an arena to people that have um come to see me and uh and so it, yeah, nothing really beats it in terms of it, the excitement and the adrenaline of doing it as well. Nothing mm. comes close to that. It's a very hard thing to replace in any and, other. And is that a thing when you say it's your first love, but that feeling, we've had a number of comedians on this show, they talk about that that sort of journey from the sort of worry and the anxiety to the adrenaline. Is that the is that the kind of the payoff for all that anxiety? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And and part of the reason it is so exciting is because it is so terrifying <laughs> as well. Um, and there's very few things in your professional life that still um, scare you and give you just as like doing uh, a live show um, mm. 
of this of this scale so um i think yes it's definitely worth it and the adrenaline is such a real thing and you do sort of forget about it but even doing like my first preview show the other night mm. i came off stage and i was like oh i, I remember this <laughs> i'm not gonna be able to go to bed until like two o'clock in the morning and i'm probably gonna need half a bottle of wine right, yeah. <laughs> just to like um bring myself back down to normality and, and, and it is it is such a thing but when you're playing those big stadiums then like is that an even greater like you know how do you like unwind how do you bring yourself down after like sort of a kind of rock star sort of show yeah well it is re- <coughs> it is very hard and you have to be very strict with yourself not to like because it after every show it feels like you've put on a big event if you mm. want to go like oh, i'm gonna go out and get drunk now and i'm gonna celebrate and i'm gonna stay up and you know but then you're straight on to the next one the following mm. night so you have to be quite strict with yourself um and 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 stay quite focused um but you know, I, I really want to like put on a show with each of each of the dates that I do on mm. my tour. And and I also, I really do like, I have a lot of production value and I have a big musical number at the end and there'll be a big opening routine of some sort. And I'm quite a physical performer. So mm. I, I, I try to really ramp things up because I also think if you're in those types of venues, you kind of have a duty to because most people are buying tickets to the three arena to go and watch, you know, Ariana Grande or Lady Gaga mm. and if I'm going in there then I have to I, I, I'd feel like I was cheating my audience if it was just me and a microphone which right. my promoter hates because he's like you and a microphone would be a lot easier and a lot cheaper <laughs> and I'm like no but I feel like I want to do more and I can do more and and you know from the other shows that I do like League of Their Own and, and things like that where I, I, I'm you know no stranger to doing kind of big silly mm. stunts and things like that I think it, it fits with my kind of brand of humour so um, I always try to 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 really throw everything that I can at it and make it an event rather than just a gig. And is that something when you say you know you uh, you you have a show like when you, you feel that like at that moment where you feel you have a show like what is what is the development of that idea when you start thinking right this is what my next stand up show is going to be? Well, it normally comes from doing doing gigs and like creeping back into. Um, pubs and clubs and mm. going up and doing unannounced sets and that tends to happen when you've been stuck on a job where you've been st- sat on set doing nothing all day and you're just bored to tears <laughs> and you're like oh, I could I could go and do 15 minutes at this comedy club in Soho and just throw some stuff out there and see how it goes and then one of those goes well and you're like mm, I've definitely got the taste okay, of this again right, okay. and then before you know it you're like writing new material and your your brain switches as well I think because when you know, at the end of a tour, I, I, I switch off and my like stand up brain definitely shuts down mm. for a bit. And I, do, I live my life a lot more normally. But then once you're in the mode of going, oh, I have a tour, suddenly your brain changes and the way you live your life changes. And you're always looking for bits and material and observations. And mm. You read every sign as you pass it in case there could be a thing on that. Or, you know, you you definitely live life in a different way when you're looking to try to um like bring together a show and find more material um and so and and also like those terrible things that comedians do of like trying bits of material out <laughs> right, in social yeah, situations yeah. and trying to um road test stuff without um telling people uh so there's a lot of that um which is why i don't think i could do it all the time because i think if i did it all the time i would be unbearable right because i i am kind of unbearable in the run-up to a show because <laughs> okay. it's all about the show and about because because is that you is that your personality when you talk about the big show you put on and and all that and you your duty you have to the audience 
like reading interviews with you and listening to interviews with you this week, I feel like that's, you know, you're, you're very aware of that, but it's, 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 it's a different you to the person you are a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that's very true. And, you know, the me on stage is, is definitely a persona. It's much closer to who I am in real life than past personas that I've had. Or, you know, I think, you know, in the same way that like my dad is a version of himself mm. on that show that I do with him, mm. I'm a version of myself when I'm on that show as well. And I'm a version of myself when I'm on stage. It doesn't, I don't feel like it's dishonest because it's that, that I am like that quite a lot of the time, but it's a heightened version of me. Yeah. And if that was me all the time, then no one would want to be around me. <laughs> and it's slightly the thing why I think, you know, meeting comedians is such a bitter disappointment for people because we're not the person that you see up on stage and we are a, a lot of us a persona and keeping up that kind of persona all the time would be exhausting and impossible. And so mm. therefore when you meet the person and you're like, oh, you're not like the guy I see in those films or the guy I see in those, you know, DVDs, um, it can be a little bit of a letdown. Is it easier to... Like, because you have so many strings to your bow now, and you know, I was going to ask you about that. Like, you've sort of answered it for me there. You know, I was going to ask you how you decide what you're going to do at any one time, whether it's acting or comedy or whatever. But clearly, like as you say, sitting around in a in a in a stu- on a studio is when the comedy might get going. But is it is it easier in some ways when you're when you're acting just to, because you're you're playing somebody else, you're being a part? Yeah, is it easier to keep kind of more of yourself to yourself? I think so. And I think, um, yeah, you're, my focus definitely shifts. And it's a slightly um, kind of sad uh, realisation that I am always wanting to do whatever I'm not doing at the time. Right. Okay, <laughs> I, Whatever I'm doing at the time, I'm like, I think I might be happier doing yeah, that yeah. other thing that I sometimes do. And then you go, okay, well, when I finish doing this, I'll go and do that. And then mm. that'll make me happy for a bit. And then you do it. And then you get to the end of the tour and you're like, I'm so bored of the sound of my own voice. <laughs> I need to go <laughs> and just do something completely different. Mm. And that is kind of the human condition, isn't it? Always thinking... Uh, you know, like you could be on the perfect. A friend of mine tells a story of being on a perfect holiday yeah. in uh, in Tuscany or somewhere, having rented this amazing place, looking out over yeah. you know you know vineyards or whatever, and just sitting there in the sunsets and goes, oh, we should have gone to, <laughs> yeah. you know, we should have yeah. gone somewhere else. It's so true. And, you know, no matter what, there's always some some you know nagging voice that says we yeah. should have done this or we should have done yeah. that. Which Instagram is also really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> you can literally see the place you'd rather be. Take me back then when you say, you know, this was the first, uh, you know, you know stand up was your first love, like first the thing you always wanted to do. Where did that come from? Where did you get, because, you know, we know your background. We know that, you know, uh, you know, and entertainment was, you were surrounded by it. But why did you think comedy was the thing you wanted to do always? I think it was that sense of being able to do it off your own back and not be reliant on anyone Mm. else. And that probably came from when I was at school wanting to make people laugh and then thinking, well, how can I do this to a bigger audience and in a more professional um, situation? And therefore that was like school plays and things Mm. like that. And that didn't really work out for me at school. So then I had one of those personalities where I was like, well, if, it's the school aren't going to help me do it then I'm going to have to find a way of doing this myself and putting things on off my own bat and 
then I ended up doing like sketch shows and putting on little um, like gigs in in like pubs and uh, I put my own play on at school and, mm. and then the minute I'd done that and and done it in front of an audience and entertained people, I was completely bitten by the bug of it and, and wanted to do it more. And then I went to the Edinburgh Festival mm. and that's when I saw it being done professionally for the first time. And I saw stand-up as a viable thing that you could go and do and it was like a career. Right. And then there was like no looking back. I was like, I have to get to the Edinburgh Festival um, and I don't care how I do it, but I need to get there. And again, I went to the school. I was like, maybe we could do a play and we could go out there and the school were like, no, I, we don't think that that's a good idea and it's a waste of time. So I was like, okay, um, I'll just do it off my own bat and, and I put together a sketch show with two friends and we went up to Edinburgh and we did a month there and that's when I first started doing stand-up was in this um, sketch show I was terrible I got like one star reviews I was basically doing like an impression of what I thought a stand-up was the material was so hack and so terrible hmm. um, but there was like no looking back I was <laughs> okay. like, I'm, I'm in now and like getting terrible reviews when you're kind of but, yeah, 17 yeah. for someone like me was like well Okay, I have to prove all of these people wrong. Was that how you felt about it? You didn't. It didn't make you shrivel up. Uh, it made me shrivel up, but I think very useful thing to have when you're a comedian. I I I must have just had like the height of a rhinoceros and, mm. and just was very very um, ambitious because I loved it and I and I knew and, and I knew that having done this and tried this that that I wasn't going to be happy doing anything else. So it gave me a lot of kind of incentive to try and prove them wrong and to prove them that I could actually do it and that I could be a, a good stand up. Um, and so then I just like took every gig that I could and, um, and tried to get, um, tried to get better. Um, and, and there's this great thing that you all, every comedian, um, at some point has been told when they start out. And it's the thing that was the most frustrating thing to hear as a comedian when I was first doing it, which is they go, Oh, you, you know, you've got the old good joke and, you know, you're confident on stage, but you need to find your voice. And it was this like mystical thing that everyone mm. said, like, you need to find your voice. I was like, what is my voice? Can you just tell me and, and I'll do my voice? And they're like, that's not how it works. You need to find your <laughs> voice. So I was like, oh my God, this is so annoying. Um, and now obviously looking back, I understand completely what that meant. It meant that you had to find a uh, kind of truth and you mm. had to find um, a version of yourself that you can present on stage that is, you know, that is true to yourself and, and, and that works and is distinctive mm. and is um, interesting and, and, and is a good angle for, for comedy. And at the beginning I was doing impressions of other comedians. I was mm. doing like a deadpan version of Jack D and Stuart Lee, who were heroes of mine at the time. And that wasn't me. And then I started, you know, talking like Russell Brand and doing mm. a load of um, gigs where I was, putting on like a Cockney accent and there's footage of those. And every time I watch them, I just like cringe and crease inside. Yeah. But I was like, I don't want people knowing that I'm posh because I think that's not going to mm. fare well. And, and, and people aren't going to like that if there's a posh guy up on stage telling jokes, I think they're going to hate me. And, and then going through all of that and then <laughs> working out that if actually what I needed to do was to be closer to myself and yeah. find a way of being myself on stage, but self-deprecating and creating a character that people could be on board with and laugh with. And and then I guess eventually I found my voice, which is the voice that you see now, which is a, just a heightened version mm. um, of me. Um, and that isn't a bad impression of Jack D or Russell Brand. Right, yeah. But you, you were saying if people who don't know, your father... Was an is an agent was an agent. Your mother was was an actress. So yeah. like you were, it was in it was in the blood. You were surrounded by it. Yeah. Um, but like, was that something? 
because you know I went into a business that my father was in, and other people are totally uh, averse to it. Yeah, they don't yeah. Want anything to do. But were you from a kid? Were you excited by the stuff you saw your father doing? The people you saw? Definitely. The, yeah. Yeah. I definitely saw that world and was very attracted to it, and it was felt exciting and glamorous and cool and interesting. And I, you know, had people that were close to me and in my life that were people that I really admired. And you know, <clears throat> like Richard Griffiths, the actor, mm. was my godfather, mm. um, and he was someone that we would go, I would go and watch in in plays in the West End, and he would be hilarious and have an audience in the palm of his hand and um was the most captivating stage actor i've ever seen and so i definitely would yeah. go to things like that and see him and be like oh my god i'd love to do what uncle richard does um nigel havers was another uh, yeah well the less said <laughs> nigel uh yeah he was he, he was, was at all, your birth he was always loitering around <laughs> as well uh <laughs> do you want to come see me in a play as well no nigel i'm fine uh no no he's he was he was great and he was a, again like a, a man i go and see watch him on stage mm. and he's funny and he's like charming and charismatic and i was like you know, that's the kind of person that I'd like to be when I grow up. Yeah. Um, and so those two people are, were very important um, to me when I was growing mm. up because they were the, the people doing something that I saw and I was like, I would like to do that. And, and my dad went, no way. You're Your not father with, was very against it. He was very against it because as an agent, he looked after successful actors like mm. Nigel and Richard, but he also looked after a load of people that really struggled for work that yeah. had gone into it and then dropped out of it. And he knew that it was a very hard industry to, to kind of make it in. So mm. I think he was very keen that I went and did something a bit more traditional and got is, a degree. And is it true? He used to send you, he sent you into the neighbor who worked for Goldman Sachs to kind of try and see if you, if you like that. Yeah. Well, he always says that he always says that he wished that I'd like, you know, work for Goldman Sachs and, and, and become a lawyer or do, do something um, like a decent, like mm. honest profession. Um, but then he let me go and study history of art at Manchester. So I don't know whether that would have necessarily yeah. been the right route to go to Goldman and Sachs. Um, I think it was just, I think it was just kind of, yeah, I think it was just like an apprehension. To- mm. But it is, it is a hugely uh, precarious business, isn't it? Even there's a story in your, in the book, the two of you wrote, wrote about Leslie Phillips, who was a, you know, very successful actor, but you know, I think as told for uh, as a joke, but yeah. like him calling, you know, just the day you were born, oh, look, yeah. looking to see if, you know, <laughs> any news on the job. He was yeah, yeah, for. yeah. And like that sort of sums up the sort of actor's life. There. Yeah. I think also by the time that I was about 18 or, you know, 17, 18 and deciding what I wanted to do, I think my dad had kind of fallen out of love with the industry a bit. And right. a lot of his clients had left him his business was sort of winding down a bit and he Mm. was thinking of retiring and I think he was probably a bit disenchanted with the whole thing um and you know my mother as well had been an actress and had a very kind of up and down career and she'd had some you know decent credits and she's very talented but she by no means made it in in that industry so I think they had enough um they had enough information and enough awareness um of the the nature of the industry to 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 be quite wary of me like diving into it and mm-hmm. just solely committing to going to drama school and trying to become an actor so that's why i think they were like you need to finish school you need to go to university you need to go a more traditional route and it backfired massively because i turned around and went i'm gonna be a stand-up <laughs> and they must have thought oh we should have let him go to drama school <laughs> but was it a house because like 
your your family and especially your relationship with your father has become such a huge part of yeah of your career and it's it's uh you know it's a very mo- like it, it's very funny your relationship but it's also a very tender affectionate um relationship that you you portray um and i was wondering how much of that altered over the years like because you know it was, was like you were sent away to boarding school when you were eight yeah was it was it a, like was did you grow up in an affectionate house was it was it a house full yeah. of kind of warmth it was really and people find that really weird <laughs> when i'm like it was a very affectionate he was a very loving father i mean yes he sent me away to um live somewhere else <laughs> aged eight that was 66 miles away from the family home and mm. came to see me once a week um which doesn't sound like a loving act but <laughs> uh I, I genuinely think he sent me there because at the school i was at in london i was really struggling and, right. and i was you know um he felt like i would have a better chance at the place that he sent me to and and i did um and so but we did have, we always, we always have had a very close relationship. I mean, obviously there's been moments like when I was back living at home, like 18, 19, I thought they were the most annoying people in mm. the world and couldn't wait to get out of there. And we've had our moments, but we have a very close family unit and he has always been someone that has in- inspired me. And, uh, you know, he's always been a very witty person. And I guess, you know, going back to talking about why I wanted to do what I do, I think the earliest memories of wanting to make people laugh in a very base level were from watching my dad entertain people because he was always entertaining. He was always the funniest person in the room at any like dinner party or drinks party Mm. or even amongst these actors, you know, who were, I would be seeing on stage like commanding a room and and making thousands of people laugh in a theatre. But then afterwards in the dressing room, everyone would be turning to Michael and he would be making the jokes and they would be like, oh, you must meet my agent. He's the funniest man in London. And, and I saw that and I thought, you know, I'm, I admired it so much mm. and I was so in awe of him that I think that's, that was the genesis of me going, oh, I want to be that person. I want to be the person that people turn to in the room. And there were things you took straight from, from his life that you just put on, you took on to, into your stand-up initially, was there? Yeah. Like, stories like, you know, uh, his comment about Robert Mugabe. Robert Mugabe, yeah, <laughs> which kind of suddenly resurfaced the, uh, a couple of months ago. Like my phone blew up. I was like, what's happened? Oh, Robert Mugabe's died. So that'll be that'll be why I'm getting all these notifications because people are retweeting a, um, a routine from about eight years ago. Um, but uh, he was, yeah. It, 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 it's, um, it's weird because back then I did all these jokes and no one knew who he was. So yeah. I, I would create, I, I'd have to do like, you know, a couple of minutes of setting up who my father was describing this character. You know, it's a pretty easy character to get. to get. Um, but a lot of my shows would be spent mm. creating this character that you that none of them knew and then doing routines about him. And then now I've done this show. Um like I find I can literally I, just the mention of his name gets a laugh from the audience okay, and, amazing. and then I can I can literally just dive straight into to, to stuff about him and people really enjoy it because I think they they feel like they know a character which is great mm. um, it's such a nice um, and you must have felt you had this great as you brought brought him into your show and you did the you know the, the show the original show the uh in, you did it in Edinburgh first, was it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you must have felt that like this is great. I've got this on you know this untapped comic gold mine for, yeah. for you, like you know, which was, which was your father. Yeah. Well, that was the that, that was why we did it in Edinburgh. Is that yeah. I'd done a load of jokes about him in shows, yeah. and then I went, I can't keep 
peddling these out because I need to find a different avenue for my stand-up. And so I did stop talking about him on stage. Mm. But my friend Ben Cavey, who's my producer at the time and directed my shows, he was like, well, you're going to be up at Edinburgh anyway. And people sort of know your dad now a bit, that the ones that have come to see your show. So you might as well just do something with him because he's coming up for a couple of days. Let's do a chat show. And so we did three three chat shows at the Edinburgh Festival. And that was literally, you know, and he was very reluctant to do them. But I was like, it'll be fun and I'll do most of the heavy lifting. You just got to sit there and mm-hmm. make a few, you know, wry comments. And it was one of those things where then, because it's Edinburgh, there was a load of people from the BBC in and they were like, oh my God, we've got to do this as a TV show. And we were genuinely like, no, we don't want to do it as a TV show. This is not, that, that was not the purpose of doing this. We literally just did this because we were both going to be up here and we thought it might be fun. Mm. And they really like pursued it so hard that we were like, okay, we'll do a pilot and then that's it. And then we did the pilot and then they were like, you can have a series. And then we ended up doing like three series. And mm. and then at the end of that, I was like, I don't want to be a chat show host. I've never wanted to be a chat show host. I had no interest in doing this. I was just doing it because it was a fun thing to do <laughs> yeah. with my dad. And then Netflix were like, um, how do you like to travel around the world uh, with him? Uh, you can just do one one off little series. We'll send you to Southeast Asia. Mm. And then you can, that can be the end of this journey. And now, I don't know, we've done like three seasons. Mm. And I'm doing, I did a live Christmas special with him. It's like, I can't create a monster. <laughs> Has it changed your relationship with him? Has it deepened it? Um, it's deepened it. It's made it a little bit more intense because we have a we have our relationship as father and son. We have a business relationship as well, and now we also have a professional mm. relationship, like you would have with any double act. Where mm. there's a lot of working out bits and how you know our comedy dynamic yeah. should work in scenes and stuff like that, which is kind of really weird. So there are lots of layers to it, but it does mean we're in constant contact and because there's a very moving moment in the in the netflix where you talk in the last episode yeah where you talk about you know how people come to you and you know say to you that like this is a wonderful thing and wonderful opportunity you you get to spend yeah this much time with your father is that something that you didn't expect to be the a consequence of it but something as the time goes on that you realize it is a consequence of it yeah definitely definitely I, I i definitely am very aware of how lucky i am to spend that time with him and, and i do really enjoy being being able to spend the time with him i think the flip side of it is that a lot of the time we spend together is in a kind of professional guise right, now yeah and the important thing is to try to ring fence time where we can just be a father and son and spend Mm. time just talking about you know football or you know whatever it is like common interests that aren't Mm. work and it's not always work because at the moment sometimes it just becomes like we're like a double act that meet and work and you know it's it's important to remember to kind of spend some real life time together as well um so that's that's where it becomes you know tricky to get the right balance but you know, I am very, very aware of his age and I'm very mm. aware that he had me a lot later and he is a lot older than, um, you know, he was a lot older than all of my other friends' fathers when mm. I was in school. So, you know, I value my time with him immensely and uh, that's why I think at this juncture I'm like, I'm more than happy to continue working with him and continue travelling around. But it is something you try to set, you will try to kind of keep that, that you think you'll do less of it just to try and keep that relationship um, more precious or more yeah. No, I, th- I, yeah, I think it's just like, I don't think I'll do less of it. I think I, I, I think I, I still do 
I'd still like to do maybe one or two more if 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 we can, you know, make it work to mm. go and to go and do a couple more because they also the more you do of them, the, the easier they come because you know what the challenges are and. Mm you know what you can handle and what you can't handle. Like the length of them. It was important to get the length of them down because the first one we were on the road for so long. Right. And it is really hard for, you know, he's like 79 and for a 79-year-old man to be like, you know, doing um, you know, six-hour drives yeah, in the back yeah. of a minibus up into the mountains of Nepal and then down. Or, you know, yeah. where it's like he can only handle so much. Yeah. So I think um, we've got we've got a little bit more careful about what the limitations are but like in my in my in my tour show the big finale is a story about um travels with my father something that happened when we were in chernobyl which was a very traumatic experience at the time Mm. and was you know like he collapsed in chernobyl and ended up in a in a hospital in um in chernobyl which is a very scary place Mm. to have an episode like that um and that was the moment where i was like i think i've pushed him too far and i felt like mortified um but now, <laughs> a couple of years later, we've somehow managed to turn it into a comedy routine. Okay. <laughs> because I think for both of us, the best way to deal with something like that is to try and make a joke of it. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and is that something that, you know, you talked about finding your voice there and like that idea you had that, you know, if you were posh, that you, know, you couldn't be posh as a comedian. Um, like... That sense you had, like going away, going to a boarding school, uh, going to a couple of schools that were kind of elite schools. Yeah. Um, how aware were you that that was a kind of insulated world at the time? And like how more aware of it did you become once you embarked on a kind of stand-up routine? Or yeah, stand-up far, career? More, far more aware. Like at the time, like I, I remember being at school and not considering myself to be posh and mm-hmm. also thinking... You know, because there were other people at my school that were like, you know, like gentry. (laughs) So you would never consider yourself to be posh. I was, I'm just like a normal middle class guy. Yes, I go to a boarding school, but Mm. I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm not like the guy with a triple barreled surname that's in my history class. Well, and in the class system in Britain is always very, uh, clear and establishing those differences isn't it yeah, like, yeah. you know what i mean there yeah be, even within yeah, yeah, posh yeah. there's like, like three layers remember they used to say of michael heseltine that you know he he was a man who'd bought his own furniture and that yeah. was seen as a kind of you know he's clearly not really posh yeah you know, so. well there definitely was that at my school as well like people mm. that you know would be considered nouveau riche and yeah, yeah. people that would be considered like aristocracy mm. because they were um but I, I i never felt it when i was at school and then i left school and then i it was like a bit of a culture shock. Yeah. And I, we went to Manchester and went to university up there. I was like, oh no, I'm a massive posho. And then <laughs> I was like, no one must know. I need to like completely mask this. Mm. I need to change my voice. I need to dress differently. I need to go to dubstep nights. I need to pretend <laughs> to be interested in things that I'm not because I just don't want anyone to know. And then, uh, yeah, I guess the realisation is going, you can be yourself. You just have to be self-aware and yeah. you have to be, um, you know, you you have you just have to be aware of your privilege, and you have mm. to find a way of, um, you know, talking about it and using it, and 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 not like, um, not not running away from it and yeah. facing up to it, and and uh, using it as 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 something as you know, like I I I was like I think I think it's better to to go on stage and be open about it and just mm. 
self-deprecate and and point out how ridiculous it is my lifestyle and my privilege and my background and 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 send up the preposterousness of having gone to these schools and having these friends and and make a joke of it and make light of it i think is a better route and is it is easy like at the same time do you ever get sort of the idea that life is always easy is something that sort of some people will then uh push on people who have gone to certain schools and had a certain lifestyle do you resent like that idea Definitely. I mean, I, no, no, I don't resent it. I mean, I think it's true. Like I mm. think every, I've had so much opportunity and so many doors that mm. are open to me. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no, no getting away from the fact that going to a, a school like mine, it, you, it was a huge like leg up in life and you have so much privilege and you have so many connections that uh, are available to you. Um, that said, I, I like to think that I've managed to pick an industry that is a meritocracy because with stand-up you can only get so many connections you can only mm. get so many like doors being held open for you at the end of the day if you're not funny and you can't make an audience laugh you, you, you're gonna, dead yeah. you are yeah. dead like there's no there's no getting around that so that i don't know whether that was maybe in a way part of the appeal of like finding something like stand-up to go and do mm. because it sort of doesn't matter where you're from. Um, it's kind of a lonely business too, isn't it? It's you on a, on a stage. Yeah. Like you're not surrounded by the, the uh, protection of the public school system. Exactly. And also it's that's why it's kind of great is that probably TV less so. Like TV, I reckon, you know, you could, you could get to, because someone's uncle worked at the BBC mm. or whatever, there was probably a faster route to it. But you went to the comedy store and and asked Don Ward at the comedy store, um, could I have a um, 20 minute set? Uh, I went to Marlborough and this guy knows this guy. He would literally slam the door in your face. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I think that's a great thing about the comedy circuit. I think mm. it's a really refreshing thing about the comedy circuit is that like, like people, people get found out. And, yeah. Yeah. And it is like, it's so honest and it's, uh, you know, you just have to be good at what, what what you do, and and if you aren't good at what you do, then you you'll only go so far. And um, audiences are just very honest, and they're very they're very hard to to, mm. to con. So um, I think that's one of the good things about stand up. And is it something that you became more aware of because you know it, it is a time in Britain where you know a lot of people. And it keeps going. You know, the, the the last prime minister was, uh, you know, but but one was it was an old Etonian, yeah. And now we have, you know, in Britain there's another yeah. old Etonian. Like, is it something you become more conscious of when you see Definitely. these people? Oh my god, yeah, like posh guilt. And when you see mm. those people on TV, is is a very real thing. Yeah, posh guilt. Yeah, I think you get a lot of posh guilt. But also, it sort of depends on the school. Like my school was, you know, it had a. It was sort of artistic, artistic leaning. Like it was right, the, yeah, the, yeah. the types of people that went there. Maybe, or maybe that was just the circles that I were I was in. But it, like, I know Etonians, and I've met mm. a lot of Etonians. Mm. And just the problem is, they are literally, you know, they're like bred to think that they are <laughs> made to rule. Yeah. Like, it, like, and even really, not, like, I've met a lot of Etonians that are really nice, and they would admit to it like that's cool there's just something about it where like 
because it has that history and it has yeah. all those people. Obviously, that doesn't mean everyone went to Eton thinks that they're going to be prime minister. But I think there is definitely... But it's, it's a disproportionate amount that do. It's insane. They have like 12 prime ministers <laughs> who went to that school. So I guess it's quite hard not to be yeah. at that school and think, I could be prime minister one day. Which is I, not, prob- or else I probably will be. I probably will be prime minister one day. It's, 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 it's crazy. Yeah. It's so weird that that is, that that is the case. And what have you meant? Made? I'm allowed to say that, by the way, as well, because I tried to get into Eton and they didn't want me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I failed. I failed the entrance exam, like, drastically. They were like, he's not smart enough to be here. He's not prime ministerial he's material. He's not prime ministerial material. He can maybe working <laughs> as a councillor somewhere. <laughs> Although, given how it's gone over the last few years, I'd say you could have done a good job. A better job as Prime Minister. I don't know, I don't know about yeah. How have you made... Maybe it could be... What do you make of that at the moment? Because it does seem like, again, that elite... The, the, the sense of there's an elite driving something that isn't necessarily good for... Uh, and, you know, in Ireland it's become something that, that has brought up, you know, old antagonisms and old sort of sense of very... You know, the... Uh, you know, a colonial, if you like, kind yeah. of view of, of England, which was gone. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of unfortunate. Like, I lived in England for a long time and I, I love loved living there. Yeah. Um, and it seems unfortunate that through the actions of that kind of public school, a certain, as you say, a certain type of public school thinking, that these old kind of antagonisms are up, raised up again. Yeah, I find it de- I find it really depressing and... I think <laughs> as someone that went to a public school that has a conscience <laughs> and the fact that I went to that type of school sits quite heavily with me. Mm. I, I feel like everything I'm do, I, I don't know. I just want to, want to when I go out on stage, like part of the thing is like, I want to just be like, we're not all like that. <laughs> like some of us care. Right. Some of us aren't uh, like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is. There's no getting away from the fact that it, it's a. Uh, it's very uneven, and mm. and it's really and it's really uh, as someone that c- comes from a background of privilege, you you watch the behaviour of some people that are from the same background as mm. as you, and it really makes you kind of upset and depressed, and also because you see those people, and I see those people on TV, and I'm like, I know that guy, I remember that guy at school, mm. and he was at my school, and he was the one at school that like you would avoid in the corridor because he would... Right. And then that's the one that's now like home secretary. And you're like, <laughs> oh, this is so depressing. Because right. it's never... The, it's never the... Yeah, it's always... It just attracts a certain type of person, yeah. I think. That um, type and it's of- a thankless task. It's like, I, I don't know why anyone would want to go into politics, mm. um, especially at the moment. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't talk a lot about politics. Yeah, I don't yeah, do a I lot know. of politics yeah, in my yeah. show. And I kind of run away from it and try to bury my head in the sand a little bit just because I find it a little bit depressing. And But you say you, it has, like, where your, your background sort of uh, made you quite conscious of having a kind of a social conscience anyway. I think so, yeah. Mm. And that's also for my mom. Right. But it, it's a weird, like, it, it was a weird household to grow up in from a political point yeah, of view yeah. because I grew up with, like, number one Tory. Right. Like, Your dad coming in reading Simon Heffer columns yeah. to you when you're in bed with a girl. Yeah, like the most ardent <laughs> conservative supporter. Like he's got Margaret Thatcher, Toby Juggs all over the house and like every book that on Winston Churchill that's ever been mm. written, true, in our house. And then 
my mum, who is definitely not that. So yeah, yeah. I think that allowed me to grow up with a, a far greater um, perspective mm. than had I just been raised by my dad. <laughs> in which case, <laughs> I'd probably be doing this uh, interview in a tweed jacket. <laughs> And uh, and the content would be very different. <laughs> My gigs would be rallies rather than shows. Um, so yeah, I'm just I'm thankful that my mother was there. To, yeah, um, yeah, To really, she's yeah, she's a very very big influence on the way that I see the world. Right, and that's something maybe because you've had this you know public career with your father that maybe sometimes gets forgotten, does it? Yeah, definitely. Mm. And she's a very important person in my life, um, and. Uh, you know, she's a very, very caring, very generous woman. She's a doula, is she? Yeah, she's a doula. She, yeah. You know, she's had you know loads of different jobs. She came from a very working class background. Mm. Um, she, you know, didn't go to university. She worked straight out of school. She's done loads of different jobs. She was an actress for a little bit. Mm. Uh, she was a doula. She does a load of charity work. She's like a saintly, saintly woman. Right. Um, and somehow <laughs> is married to Michael and they have this amazing <laughs> relationship that in in its own way is, works really well and is they're like an amazing double act themselves. Mm. Um, and, you know, they both are a huge influence on my life. But I think maybe people only see my father um and you know there's definitely elements of him in my character but my mum is a, is 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 very very important as well how much acting how much more do you want your acting side of your career to develop over the next few years because in the series with your father you've talked about going to live in LA possibly yeah uh, is that something that you would pursue yeah I, w- I i would like to pursue that i mean i love acting and i love you know for me, I guess the end game has always been to try. I'd love to make, you know, those um, classic. I'd love to make a classic comedy film that mm. people watch for the next forty years. Like that's the 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 dream mm. for someone like me is to create one of those kind of like magical films. And so, I would like to develop that. And I really enjoy acting. I don't necessarily enjoy LA that much because I think I'm. I, pref- I, I, I miss home too much when I go there and it just feels like too alien, alien a place mm. for me to spend too much time in. So I think if, if I did ever go over there, I would have to come back quite a lot um, and probably couldn't live over there quite yet. But then again, who knows, in a couple of years, my head may be so far up my own ass <laughs> that I might be ready to go to Los Angeles and just go full, full LA. I'll get the teeth done. <laughs> You, you, did you audition for Brian May in the Queen in, in Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's quite. That, that, that's kind of how this ending for the latest show um, ended up happening. Is that? So I auditioned for the Queen film, yeah. and my agent said that I could play the guitar um, to a good degree. I've never picked up a guitar in my life, so that backfired <laughs> quite drastically. How, how then, quickly did you get found out? On that? Oh, like instantly, right. like because like, I'm a terrible liar. It's like, so you can play the guitar. I was like. No, I've never played the guitar in my life. And then, they, then the whole audition, it was like dead from then on in. Um, but then I think somehow it was like, <laughs> then people could assume that I could do musicals because I think I'd auditioned and, you know, got in the room for that. So then they sent me up for another musical, which I did like a non-musical audition for. I just read for the part and, and they were like, oh, yeah, this is good. Um, but we are going to have to send you off for musical assessment. So I went off and I got assessed musically by a guy who's like a vocal coach. who's was really nice. And I've never sung before in my life. I'm terrified of singing. I, you know, 
I've always said, if anyone says, can you sing? I'm like, no, I'm completely tone deaf. Anyway, he coached me through it. And I think the response or the feedback after that um, vocal assessment was that my voice was salvageable, that if they auto-tuned it enough and with enough training that I could get it to a level where if loads of other people were singing in the scene, it wouldn't be terrible. But salvageable <laughs> was the word. And that was enough enthusiasm and that was enough like of, a, of praise for me to go, I need to do a musical number at the end of my tour show. I heard someone say that my voice wasn't terrible and with enough autotune could be fixed. And I thought, I'm going to be a musical star now. And that tells you everything you need to know about me. Is that I need very little encouragement. To just go for to it. To just go for it. I'm going to Edinburgh. I'm putting on a sketch show. I'm going to become a stand-up. Your voice isn't actually terrible. I'm going to be a musical star now. Jack, it's been wonderful having you here. Oh, Thanks no, so thank much. you very much. Thank you. Yeah, really nice to chat to you. You're listening to Ireland Unfiltered, together with Carlsberg Unfiltered. Well, that was Jack Whitehall. He is playing in the Three Arena on the 17th and 18th of December. Um, before we go, don't forget to subscribe to Ireland Unfiltered and all the usual channels. And if you like the show, please do leave a review. Ireland Unfiltered, together with Carlsberg Unfiltered. Please drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.ie